Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Maria Solis of the Brookings Institution to discuss the regional trade architecture of the Asia Pacific. The two start off by analyzing the geopolitical significance of RCEP and CPTPP and what the lack of U.S. participation in both trade agreements means for U.S. trade strategy under the Biden administration. Mireya also dives deeper into Japan's economic strategy in Asia and argues that Japanese leadership in the region is likely to continue. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm joined by friend and colleague Mireya Solis, who is at the Brookings Institution. She runs their Center for East Asian Policy Studies and is the Phil Knight Chair in Japan Studies, a scholar of political economy of Japan and especially of the regional trade and architecture building process in Asia. And this is a critical piece of strategy. It's one that has seen the U.S. step back in recent years after a decade or more of leading on institution building in Asia, and one that the incoming or new Biden administration will not be able to avoid. There is no doubt that when Joe Biden starts having extensive summits with the prime ministers of Japan and Australia, Canada, and other leaders in the region, they will ask him for a trade strategy, as they did President Obama in 2009. And it's not a good topic in American politics, but it's an unavoidable topic in the statecraft of Asia. So we don't know yet what the Biden administration will do precisely on trade and on regional architecture uh, as it relates to economics, but we have the best person to help us guess what that might be based on history and the realities in the region. So, uh, Miria, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So we always start by asking how you got here. And it's a fascinating question for people who want to grow up to be you. So tell us, how, how did you end up at Brookings? How did you end up focusing on Japan, political economy, Asia? Sure, Mike. Well, quite frankly, I started earlier, uh, early, but I was not strategic about it. And what I mean by this is that, as you probably know, I grew up in Mexico, in Mexico City. And uh, by coincidence, my mother decided to enroll me and my sister in a Japanese school. We had no prior background or uh, knowledge of Japan or Asia, but I was exposed to the language and the culture and I was hooked. And then I decided that most Mexican students of international relations were focused on the United States, were looking at Latin America, but not Asia. And that actually became a focus of mine early on. And when I came to uh, the United States for grad school, I was trying to soak in as much as I could Japanese studies uh, on all areas. And I became a professor. I was a tenured professor at American University, but uh, I wanted to do applied work. I was very interested in policy and uh, Brookings had an opening and I thought that probably will do it. And I'm very lucky to have been at Brookings now for eight years straddling, you know, research and policy engagement. So we should spend a little time maybe later in our conversation about Mexico and Japan and Mexico and the Pacific Rim. I don't think many Americans think about this very much, particularly in Washington, 
I know on the West Coast, there's a bit more attention to it, but well, let's do it now. I mean, Mexico has had a quite extensive trade relationship with Japan. Some of the early bilateral trade negotiations Japan um, attested and experimented with were with Mexico. And then because of NAFTA, Japanese FDI is, it's not in the United States, it's in North America and especially Mexico. Tell us a little bit, because I don't think people think about Mexico in the context of Asia strategy and Asia policy, about some of the Mexican connections sure. with Japan and with the region. Uh, it's a very long and deep uh, relationship. And as you say, it's probably not that well known outside of Mexico and Japan. Mexico actually was one of the first countries, if not the first, to negotiate an agreement with Japan on equal terms at a time when for Japan's diplomacy, there was an essential priority to set aside the unequal treaties. Uh, so that tells you how far and how important this relationship is. Mexico has received in the past a large amount of uh, Japanese uh, immigrants. Mexico has the third largest community of Japanese living abroad. You know, people think about Brazil and Peru, but uh, actually there is a very large and um, vibrant community in Mexico. And uh, Mexico and Japan economic ties are also long and deep. Uh, in the beginning, they were mostly about trading commodities like oil. Uh, the school that I mentioned that I attended you know, was a reflection of the booming relationship after Mexico became an oil exporter, but later on also became uh, very important on the trade front. And again, talking about first experiences in negotiating agreements, the agreement with Mexico, the free trade agreement with Mexico was the first time really that Japan made concessions, limited if you will, but some concessions on agriculture. And given that Mexico has a network of trade agreements, the team is very experienced one thing that my friends uh, in the Mexico trade ministry would tell me is that they were constantly fielding questions from their Japanese counterparts about the nuts and bolts of preferential trade agreements. So that gives you, I think, an interesting sense of the relationship. And of course, given the proximity between Mexico and the United States, the uh, deep economic ties in North America, that also is of great interest to Japanese companies. And in many ways, it was NAFTA which first alerted Japanese companies to this shift towards preferential trade agreements and uh, was a big motivating factor for Japan to undertake a new track in its economic diplomacy. So there's a lot of depth that is not appreciated here, I think. And a lot of importance to the United States. And um, when you say one of the first countries to sign an equal treaty, you move beyond the unequal treaties, you're talking well over a century ago. Yes, that's what I'm referring yeah, to, yeah. yes. And, um, and also Japan was, um, was quite open uh, to expanding the original APEC very early on to include Mexico. I think it was particularly Mexico because of NAFTA and because of Japan's history that helped locked in the Pacific Rim, trans-Pacific aspects of APEC and architecture. That, that Mexico-Japan connection, I think, was probably the core of why that happened in some ways. Yes, and it's a very important part of Mexico's foreign policy, the Pacific Rim identity. And I think that one of the items that Mexico is now trying to accomplish is diversification of economic relations. And they're looking to Asia and they think of Japan as a very important partner to accomplish that. So a lot of Americans don't think about U.S. relations with Mexico. <laughs> um, uh, but the reality is it is a dimension of our Indo-Pacific strategy. It really is. It's not just a North America policy issue. So let's talk about trade agreements in the region and bring it up to the present. You know, the Biden administration comes into office as two major trade agreements have been completed in the region, CPTPP, which, of course, was the Trans-Pacific Partnership and did include the United States at the core before 2017. 
and RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is often, some, I think, mistakenly characterized as a China um, agreement. It's not. It's, it's, you know, it was started within ASEAN and Japan. But what, is it, what does it mean, just in terms of our strategic interests, that the two biggest agreements in this region don't have us at the table? Well, it's, it's big and it's unfortunate. And part of it is our own, own goal, especially when it comes to the uh, TPP. Let me start with talking a little bit about RCEP, because I think that the CPTPP is already better known. Just a word on that, you know, the 11 countries uh, largely led by uh, Japan were able to rescue that trade initiative after the huge blow of the U.S. departure. And they maintain uh, basically the same level of ambition when it comes to rules, a very surgical approach to suspending just some rules, and then the same tariff uh, liberalization, very ambitious set of goals. But RCEP is a newest arrival, if you will. And I think that for a while, Mike, there's been a little bit of a bad habit uh, for a long time of being dismissive of RCEP's potential. One, because it's not CPTPP and therefore it did not have the same set of standards. But second, because, you know, people were assuming that it would never really come to fruition. The negotiations took very long time. And the idea was that perhaps it was never uh, going to come together. Well, now we are here where the agreement has been uh, signed. And it is a big deal on a number of fronts. First of all, when it comes to economic heft, we're talking about the largest trade deal in the world. It basically comprises something like one third of world GDP. But also very importantly, this is an agreement that is very much geared to make the operation of global supply chains flow more smoothly. There is this desire to make sure that companies can tap on the sources of comparative advantage across the 15 member countries. So a lot of flexibility in how companies can transfer components and trade and invest across the region. And therefore, one way to think about our submic is that countries are stitching the region together. Then there's another important, um, I think, dimension and uh, we should keep in mind that RCEP in many ways is important because it introduces for the first time preferential trading amongst the three largest Northeast Asian economies, China, South Korea, and Japan. And we know that some of those political relationships are complicated, and therefore it's very significant that they're going to be integrating further, they're going to be trading and investing uh, more. And as you mentioned, this is a big win for China. It does not mean that China was the driver of the negotiations. It does not mean that it was originally a Chinese initiative, but China has played its cards well. And at a moment where, you know, there's a lot of discussion as to whether there'll be reshoring of supply chains, whether we decoupling in some uh, sectors and so forth, what RCEP does in many ways is it blunts that narrative of decoupling, because China is now part of the largest ticket in town. And China accomplished this without having to surrender what it cares the most about, and that is its tools of industrial policy, of intervention in the economy. So it did not have to, you know, abide by disciplines of state-owned enterprises or curb its industrial subsidies or give up its digital protectionism. And nevertheless, there it is as a very important pillar of RCEP and regional integration. One of the reason trade policy experts poo-pooed RCEP a bit was because in comparison to, to TPP, it didn't have those behind the border state-owned enterprise disciplines and other things. But of course, 
TPP exists, the CPTPP. We're not in it, but can Japan and Canada and Mexico and other countries use that as leverage with China? Because those standard enterprise disciplines are largely still in TPP, even though we're not. Or is it just going to be too hard to discipline China and use that leverage without the U.S. in the mix? Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, right after RCEP came together, China began to signal more strongly than in the past its interest in joining CPTPP. And the question there, of course, has always been readiness and political will. Because indeed, if China were to join CPTPP, it would have to be incorporating a far more intrusive set of disciplines and bigger reform commitments on its part. And nothing that I've seen lately, uh, frankly, makes me think that China is indeed willing to undertake these disciplines. There is uh, some discussion as to whether China could try to join CPTPP to lower down the standards by signing a number of side letters and trying to not be subject to the same level of disciplines. But I think that Japan and other countries have put an end to that speculation. And they have basically said that, you know, uh, countries that want to come in should not be lowering uh, standards. So it is, of course, a very important question. How can we encourage China to reform again? And I think that there is merit in disseminating the disciplines that get to some of these state trading practices. There is merit in incorporating them, as the EU, Japan, and the United States have tried to do in the WTO. And there is merit in suggesting that if China wants to enjoy deeper benefits from economic integration, it might consider down the road abiding by this. But I'm not holding my breath that China is ready to give up on any of this. So the other reasons that people didn't hyperventilate about RCEP were because India was in it. India sort of guaranteed nothing happened. But then when India got out, you know, it, it was consolidated pretty quickly. And, you know, I'm sure you looked very carefully at the Peterson Institute report some years ago, which said, actually, the best of all worlds would be to combine RCEP and TPP in what, you know, the U.S. supported when I was in the Bush administration an FTAP, a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific in 2007 in Sydney and APEC, you know, the U.S. and others agree that these should all lead towards this in what, you know, theorists call competitive trade liberalization. You know, we would batter down each other's barriers to trade and economic interdependence and interaction. Um, and that's all gone now. So, so, um, so it does seem like RCEP is creating these synergies and Northeast Asia gives China a pass that it wouldn't have otherwise had. On the other hand, Japan. Japan in 2011, I remember this from a talk I gave at the time, 16% of Japan's trade was covered by EPAs or trade agreements, only 16%. Today, it's, what, well over 80%. So Japan has really become, from a follower, a reluctant screaming and kicking follower to a real leader on these multilateral trade agreements. So that's something we didn't used to have, an active Japan. So I'd ask you, were you surprised as a Japan student and scholar to see how under Abe, Japan really stepped up on these EPAs and FTAs? And do you think it'll continue? Is it going to is it going to help us out of this problem while we in the U.S. figure out what we're going to do about all this? It is true that there's been a significant transformation in Japan's trade diplomacy. I mean, Japan used to be passive, uh, defensive, punching below its weight. And I think that this transformation was particularly uh, clear around 2013, when Prime Minister Abe came to Washington and, you know, reached that understanding with President Obama on what would be the 
package of agricultural liberalization that would enable Japan to join the uh, TPP. So this did not come out of thin air. I think it reflects longer term changes in Japan. First of all, a weakening of the agricultural lobby. Second, a process of centralization of power in the executive, in the kante, to be able to overcome this legendary bureaucratic infighting that, again, prevented Japan from being a strategic. And therefore, you had for the first time Japan, you know, setting up a TPP headquarters to really take on this negotiation with a level of ambition that had not been possible uh, before. And the third long-term transformation was the globalization of Japanese business, and therefore the need to have these deeper uh, disciplines in trade agreements. I think Prime Minister Abe was the right person at the right time to make uh, all of these elements come together. And, you know, a lot of people were more surprised when Japan rescued the TPP after the American exit. And I actually uh, remember, Mike, that the day after the uh, presidential election, when President Trump won that election, and given that he had said that he would withdraw the United States, people were writing the obituary for the TPP. And mm-hmm. I remember probably as therapy, I wrote an op-ed that <laughs> said, that's to the TPP, long live the TPP, making the case that Japan actually was now placed well to rescue the uh, TPP, taking into account this uh, trajectory. So... A lot of people told me, no, that will never happen. And there was a moment where it looked really iffy, I have to say. I don't think that Prime Minister have immediately seized on this. They wanted to check with the Americans, would this create friction or not? But they had the convening power. And, you know, a country that, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, had not negotiated preferential trade agreements before the 2000s, was now ready to uh, do what looked like a very impossible thing, and that is to rescue an agreement where the largest economy has just walked out the door. So I, that's why I think that Japan's leadership is likely uh, to continue because the foundations are there, quite frankly, because there is a vacuum to be filled. And because Japan, I think, that has found uh, its stride with rulemaking. It is the third largest economy. It still has competitiveness in many high-tech sectors, but it has found that it is that niche of rulemaking that gives Japan most uh, traction. So, you know, I think that on when it comes to economic statecraft, Japan has done more with less, if you will. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's particularly important. Uh, Saori Katara's new book does this very well, but it's particularly important to look at the changes in the domestic political economy and the way that stakeholder interests shift so dramatically so that you can put together, you almost have to put together a political coalition f- for external rulemaking and trade liberalization. But I'd add one more coming from the sort of national security side. I've been involved in decision-making on U.S., uh, Korea, chorus. U.S., Australia, and U.S., Singapore. So I was in the White House at the time and, and in this in the small group that had to decide whether or not to do this. The economic arguments and the interest group politics are necessary but not sufficient. What always pushes the White House over the line to do these trade agreements, which are incredibly hard, is national security. There's always, it's not the only reason, but there's always a geopolitical dimension. And I think you cannot uh, distinguish everything you said, which was critical from uh, the geopolitical competition with China just quite apart from economic interests. Yes, no, I agree with that. And I also think that for Japan, uh, it was about anchoring the United States to uh, the region 
and responding to a far more uh, assertive China. So th there was a lot at stake with the original TPP and with the rescue of the CPTPP and what comes next uh, for Japan's economic statecraft that is guided by geopolitical considerations. And look, very, very fortunate for the United States. Can you imagine if Japan had not played that role where we'd be right now? Yes. Uh, in a much, much worse position. At least we have a plate at the table. The food's getting very cold. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be appetizing, but we can still get in. So the, the original vision when um, the Bush administration endorsed TPP, which was originally Chile, Brunei, uh, Singapore, and uh, New Zealand, but when the U.S. got in, made it a big, big regional agreement, the original vision was you'd have TPP. RCEP would eventually align with TPP down the road. You would use TPP for leverage for a bilateral investment treaty negotiation with China because there'd be constituents within China that needed that external pressure from um, trade being uh, diverted away from China, investment diverted away by TPP. And then you'd build momentum with transatlantic TTIP agreement. And you just create this snowballing effect. Um, you know, in an ideal world, you do all this in the World Trade Organization, WTO, it doesn't function. So you, that was the idea. And it would give us uh, leverage on China. When people say the U.S. didn't see Xi Jinping's China coming, I don't think that's quite right. I think there was a plan to get purchase and leverage to shape Chinese decision making. And we've lost it, except for the parts that Japan sustained. So I think it's interesting, the incoming Biden administration, we, you and I have worked with and know a lot of these people, and it won't get them in trouble for me to say, Privately, they all support CPTPP. <laughs> but politically, it's just, I just don't see it being a priority for this administration. What do you think? How, what do we do? What do we, you can't beat something with nothing. And right now, there's nothing. I agree that to me, the most concerning part is that there's still no messaging as to what is our economic game in the region. Um, I think that, you know, uh, the first actions, of course, they, they're consequential for domestic politics, uh, you know, made in America, buying American, but it's not going to rebuild our credibility. I think that, as you said, the politics of trade are very difficult, and I don't think that there's yet consensus as to what this template of trade agreements for the Biden administration is going to be. But we know that the region is not waiting and, you know, if we're going to say that we're going to focus on government procurement and buy only from American companies, and if we say that we have so many domestic challenges and do not immediately send out a number of initiatives that have legs, I think that that's going uh, to hurt us. And I think that there are a number of things that could be done sooner rather than later. Sectoral negotiations, I think that, you know, a digital agreement would be something that could pass muster fractious U.S. politics. I think that we could also work together on boosting the resilience of supply chains. And by that, I don't actually mean thinking that everything is better if we just make it at home, but actually making sure that there is redundancies, that there is diversification, that there is transparency when it comes to critical uh, stockpiles, that there are cooperative mechanisms with our allies and partners in case we need to tap on them for a specific uh, need, uh, uh, for a specific uh, commodity. All those things could happen right away, but we need a vision and we need to make a positive case for U.S. leadership when it comes to economic uh, diplomacy. We don't have that yet. Yeah. And I think that we also should be thinking about how we make our, our way back to these mega trade agreements, and in particular, the CPTPP. 
Because just looking from the outside in is not going to serve our interest and it's not going to improve our cloud uh, in the region. Yeah. I had Bruce Stokes on this podcast. You may have heard it. And he went over the polling on American international engagement and especially trade. And as you know, rank and file Republicans now are the most protectionist, which is, of course, what Republicans were 100 years ago. (laughs) But the leadership of the Republican Party is the Chamber of Commerce, traditional Republicans, whereas the Democrats are the opposite. The rank and file are young, more urban, more pro-trade, but the leadership is much more dependent on labor union organizing. So the trade politics are just all, I would love to see at a minimum, the president or his new trade representative say something like, the U.S. will lead on rulemaking in Asia and in the Indo-Pacific. And we're going to work, we're going to consult closely with our allies and partners. And, and initially we're going to work on, you know, a digital trade. I'd love to see that, but I haven't yet. Some indication, any indication. When you say, um, you know, with these sectoral agreements, like a digital trade agreement, are you envisioning a treaty that would have to pass in the Congress? Or are you thinking more of a an executive agreement that has sort of affects regulatory issues? How much of a, of a lift are you talking about politically? Well, I, you know, I'm thinking something like what uh, Japan and the United States did, which is an executive agreement, what they did on the digital sector. But I do think that down the road, we do need something that has bipartisan support and different branches of government sign on to this. Because one of the difficulties, the handicaps that we have, Mike, is that it seems that lately, when you have one administration come in, they want to do everything that the other administration did. So this zigzag of policy does not help our interests either. We also know that even though we had in President Trump a true skeptic of trade, you know, NAFTA survived. And uh, it survived because it was ratified. There was an implementing bill that was ratified by Congress. So if you really want to send a signal that you're committed to the region and that this is not going to be reverted by the next administration, we need to think about that kind of instrument. So I would say, you know, right now we're in firefighting mode with a pandemic. We have tons of domestic uh, challenges. We have a credibility deficit. So we're going to come to the region and say, let's start thinking about a large scale trade agreement. It's not going to fly because, you know, that's going to take more than four years. So let's start small building blocks and -hmm. let's start with a digital agreement, a supply chain initiative and so forth and a commitment to reintegrate the United States uh, to the regional architecture and I think that, as you point out, the politics are difficult, but let's not forget that in the recent past, there has been a major bipartisan vote for a large-scale trade agreement. And that's the model I think we follow for a potential accession into the CPTPP. And that is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Right. And if you look at it, some of the best parts of that agreement are the TPP chapters that were brought in and uh, refined. And also there were now new labor and environmental provisions that addressed many of the concerns that the Democrats have had and has made them more reluctant to sign on to trade agreements. So there's a fair amount of convergence on the CPTPP and the USMCA when it comes to digital, when it comes to intellectual property and so forth. And what you could do is what uh, the CPTPP countries did and show pragmatism. And I think that the United States could approach the 11 countries and say, and say we want back. But, you know, to make it work for us, we would like to see some improvements 
on labor and environment and targeted negotiations will have more traction. And also keep in mind that for the CPTV countries, they're not risking the entire venture again. They're not going to be left to hang dry because if the U.S. does not get its act together and cannot really uh, bring that vote to ratify a bid to the CPTPP, the CPTPP lives on. So I think that that might actually be a more pragmatic way for the U.S. to make it to a mega trade agreement. So the digital trade chapter in USMCA and in US-Japan was good because it wasn't in NAFTA and it wasn't in TPP and it's the new frontier. So it's really critical. But a lot, as you know, a lot of economists and a lot of uh, business leaders criticize the new USMCA. They call it NAFTA, you know, 1.5 or, or 0.7 rather because it's less because there was so much managed trade built into it that it actually doesn't get you the benefits of trade liberalization. Do you think that can be avoided? as we go down the stepping stone approach you're describing? I hope so. And I agree that there were some elements, uh, you know, trade agreements are huge and there are parts that you like and parts that you don't like and they're political compromises and they're about building the right coalition to get the votes. And there are some parts of NAFTA that, you know, very stringent rules of origin, um, uh, talk about uh, some export uh, uh, restraints on automobiles. There are parts that I think were, you know, a real, Progression. They were not positive developments. Keep in mind that the U.S., if it were to pursue this path, it's an accession negotiation. And, uh, you know, Mexico, 80% of its exports come to the United States. There was less uh, ability to, you know, say no to those uh, provisions. Yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, the U.S. can bring some of these targeted renegotiations. And I actually do not see appetite among the 11 countries for any managed trade approach making its way to the CPTPP. And I think that's a good thing for our Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful in part because of history. You know, Bill Clinton came into office beating up Japan, of course, but then he used that political capital to do NAFTA. And I was on the McCain campaign. I debated, you know, my good friends, Kurt Campbell and Michael Schiffer and, and Frank Januzzi and others in these proxy debates where McCain was a pure free trade guy. And um, we just clobbered the Obama side because they were opposed to everything. Chorus, they said they were opposed to NAFTA. They were silent on the new TPP idea. But they moved. They moved quickly because it was in the national interest because there were key constituencies. And increasingly, those constituencies are Democrats. So I'm not sort of despondent about trade in the medium to long run. I just think we need a way to to signal leadership and and engagement early. And I, I'm very attracted to the idea of sexual agreements, a digital environment. We've in APEC in the past have talked about facilitation for green goods. You could reduce tariffs. Reducing tariffs on green goods could be very popular in the Democratic Party. So I think there are ways to get there. It is a little discouraging that, and it's early, but it is a bit discouraging we haven't heard any of those ideas out of the administration yet. But look, Catherine Tsai has to be confirmed. The Commerce Secretary, I think, still has to be confirmed, depending on when we broadcast this. So I can understand the hesitance. But let's scare them a little, Maria. What's the worst case scenario? What happens if we don't move on this 10, 15 years down the road? Well, you know, I think that increasingly the region moves on and we watch them move in a very different direction. It's not just the ability for them to take on big initiatives and we're not part of it, is that they're, they're moving in a very different direction, right? I mean, look at what we've done recently. I mean, of course, the USMCA was important, but that one survived because we already had NAFTA. We already had 20 plus years of integration there and 
you know, there were a lot of uh, inertias. But the other uh, newer trade uh, negotiations in Asia that we have pursued, that were pursued in the past administration are, you know, bilateral phase one agreements with China and with Japan. In the meantime, the region is taking off with the mega trade agreements that believe in the value chain and that are open for others uh, to join. And that creates, I think, a real disconnect. And if we believe that, if we're going to make the case that we don't want China to be the all-important economic and geopolitical influence in the region, and we're not centrally attached to the region, and if we're not part of those critical decisions when it comes to setting standards and rules, we're putting our companies at a disadvantage, and we're putting our diplomats at a disadvantage, and we're just becoming more aloof from the region because the region is not going to to stay still and wait for us to figure out if we're going to uh, sign on to these large scale uh, trade agreements. Can we let's turn a minute southeast to the ASEAN and Southeast Asia? One of the conundrums for the U.S. in its trade strategy in Asia is how to engage ASEAN on economic issues. RCEP does that, of course, because RCEP has all 10 ASEAN countries. The U.S. isn't in RCEP. It'd be very hard for us, as you can imagine, to do a trade agreement with Cambodia or Laos because of human rights issues, let alone Myanmar, right? Bob Zelik, when he was U.S. trade rep and deputy secretary of state, had these sort of patched together initiatives where we'd have a framework for economic engagement with all of ASEAN, but then it was like a food court. Some of them would do FTAs, some of them would do PNTR, normal trading relations. It's tricky because it's a much easier sell for Japan or Korea in the U.S. Congress, but a trade agreement that includes a Myanmar or Laos or Cambodia, that's tough. And yet, I think that's really the core of geopolitical competition. Japan and Korea are not going to join Team China, but ASEAN is in play, it seems. People debate that, but it's much more in play than Northeast Asia or India, for example. So have you given much thought to an economic strategy to help us with ASEAN, which of course is a, what is now our largest trading partner in Asia after China and Japan, ahead of Korea, I think, as a whole. Do you have any thoughts for us on the Southeast Asia piece of the economic architecture? You know, a few general comments. And, and I agree that ASEAN is critical and uh, the U.S. should have a way to more effectively engage with them. And it's not just trade. It has to be part of a more comprehensive set of strategies and policies. One, as we repeatedly say, but it bears uh, repeating, showing up, you know, regional symmetry matters. And the fact is that in the past four years, that was not the case. So I'm, I'm feeling more confident that the Biden administration understands this well, and we're not going to be, you know, the no-show, because that really hurts our interest. Second, you know, Mike, not all of it has to be what we can negotiate I think that it would be very beneficial if the United States were to curve its own unilateralism when it comes to trade measures and, um, you know, policy predictability. So a lot of what is also disconcerting for ASEAN and other countries is the fact that the United States has resorted to to tariffs very uh, freely, but also in the past administration, there was a very inconsistent approach uh, uh, on messaging and the interagency process was not working. So again, we're thinking about how we rebuild in our approach to ASEAN. I think that curbing unilateralism and policy predictability are important ingredients. Third, you know, again, we're talking, we're talking about ASEAN countries, we're talking about trade-dependent smaller economies, many of them, 
And I think that that type of economy actually does well when uh, the multilateral trading system does well. So one way we can help ourselves in the region is if we're not seen as a destructive force in the WTO, boycotting the appointment of the next director general or not moving forward with how we resolve disputes among countries by blocking nominees to the appellate body. So again, I think that it might be a little bit removed, but I do think that it's important as to a responsible leader in trade. Uh, That's the things that matter for these uh, countries. Then, you know, I think also... Because trade is hard, I think that the U.S. could also step up its efforts on infrastructure finance. And, you know, we we have some collaborations with Japan and Australia that have remained small. And I think it would be time to step up and to think about what we can do for building up uh, the region. And finally, I think that maybe some ASEAN countries are a little bit reluctant because they might see a U.S. approach immediately being seen in the light of great power competition and how they're going to navigate this. And I think that it's important to send a message that, you know, trade agreements are not security alliances. They have overlapping memberships. And therefore, I think that by not presenting this is an either or, you trade with us or you trade with China approach to specific trade negotiations, I think this already would assuage some concerns that uh, countries have in the region. So again, I think it's helpful that the Biden administration is not defining competition with China as zero-sum, as ideological. It's not about containing China. And what we need to do is actually show them a number of initiatives where we can engage. And to me, this is the biggest question, and we keep coming back to it, Mike, but is can we offer that positive vision, that confidence that we believe that integration works for everybody and that there are benefits to be shared or not, are we going to be in a defensive crouch? And that's something that I think the region is willing to see uh, what happens next. Yeah, and there are ways you've described uh, with us today that they could could send that signal very clearly, and especially in Southeast Asia, where I worry the signal for the past four years has been black and white. It's been John Foster Dulles in the 1950s. You're either with us or you're with the communists, and that's not going to work in Southeast Asia. So helping with infrastructure, trade agreements, as you describe, is a smart play. Hey, let's end with some really quick think tank gossip. For everybody listening. So you're running Asia at Brookings and I'm trying to herd the Asia cats at CSIS. Tell me if you can, how are you guys thinking about the role of Brookings, the role of think tanks on Asia policy with a Biden administration that's internationalist? So you don't have to tell them where the door is and where the windows are in the room. But we're in, you know, a a new chapter of strategic competition with China that's being defined. So how do you guys, how are you guys thinking about Brookings role in in both helping but also challenging uh, this new administration? Well, you know, mostly what I'm thinking, because I don't know that we have uh, consensus, uh, you know, we like to have constructive disagreements and discussions. But, you know, first of all, I think that just having an administration that values experts already creates an expertise uh, in the region, creates more windows of opportunity for us to be able to present our ideas in a way in which they might be entertained, not always adopted, but at least critically examined. So that already, I think, is a big uh, opening. I also, again, you know, think that at least the way I think of my own work, one thing that I've tried to convey is that the importance of not thinking of Asia policy just through the China policy angle, that there's so much more uh, to the region. And certainly Japan plays a very important role. And again, I don't think I have to uh, preach to anybody in the new team. I think that there is that understanding. But again, that 
Japan can do quite a bit and that uh, we should be uh, leaning on that partnership. But for me, uh, again, I have not yet seen the opening for these ideas about economic statecraft that are not yeah. just what we call as economic security, defensive measures. It's not the FDI controls. It's not just the export controls. But again, it's this all other arena of trade integration, of investment, of digital, of supply chain. I'm hoping that when that moment comes, I'll be ready and very eager to have that conversation. And again, you know, it's only February. So I'm sure that these conversations are happening But it would be very important because we know that everybody in the region is watching closely to have those signals sent sooner rather than later. And thanks for joining us today and and continuing to hit that bell because we will not let them off the hook. It is an administration that listens to experts that that says and I think believes it will focus on allies. But um, if you don't have a trade strategy in Asia, you're not going to have a winning strategy. And I think they know that. So I think you're doing them a big favor by pointing these things out and and starting to think about steps they can take uh, within the political context that we obviously face in the U.S. right now. So, Maria, thank you very much. Uh, last quick question. What's the next big project for you? Well, I'm writing a book on Japan's international role. It's a deep dive. It's trying to explain why Japan actually, you know, the expectation for many was that Japan would be eclipsed. And on the country, Japan actually has achieved political stability, adjusted to globalization and has a very robust economic statecraft. There are many issues that Japan is confronted with, but I think that those strengths and assets uh, do not uh, get sufficient recognition. So that is what I'm working on. Terrific. Hope you'll come back on this podcast to talk about it and looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.